Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 26. If I can transpose this into a modern key for the benefit of the contemporary reader, it might be useful to think of chapter 26 as an epilogue and chapter 27 as an appendix. It was standard practice in those days to conclude a covenant between a great king and his lesser lords with a reminder of the blessings associated with obedience and fealty and the consequent disasters associated with rebellion and neglect. Of course, when God is the great king in question, we must understand this section as containing more than mere encouragements and warnings. These are promises and curses. These are not things that might happen. These are things that will happen and things that did happen, as the continuing history of Israel plainly indicates. Now, before we get into this section of content, we probably need to adjust our lens as New Testament readers. We need to understand what we are looking at, and we need to understand to what extent these principles still apply to us as blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ. First thing we should recognize is that these promises and warnings are given to a people who have already been redeemed. The Bible would have been a very different book if God had said to the people of Israel in Egypt, if you do the following things, I will deliver you from slavery to Pharaoh and lead you into a land flowing with milk and honey. That would be a very different Bible. That would be a very different faith. That would be a covenant of works. And it would lead only to failure and frustration. But this is a covenant of grace. God delivered the people of Israel before he required anything of them. And that changes everything. The preamble to the Ten Commandments makes that same point. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So, I'm the God who saved you. You didn't save yourself. You're not going to save yourself by keeping these commandments. You're already saved. I saved you. Out of my abundant grace and mercy, I rescued you and made you a nation. Now listen up as I lay out what it means to live as the people of Yahweh. That's what is going on here. That is the shape and rhythm of the old covenant. And if we don't remind ourselves of that here, we will undoubtedly make a hash of this passage. This is not God telling people how to be saved. This is God telling saved people how to enjoy his blessings. And this is God warning saved people that persistent disobedience will bring about heavy consequence. And by the way, that principle is retained and divinely endorsed in the New Testament. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. Jesus rejected any notion that saved people could live however they wanted to. If you want to be a Jesus person, then you need to pay attention to Jesus' word. Saved people obey, and in obeying, enjoy blessings. And, and people who persist in disobedience show that they are not saved and consequently are shut out of the eternal kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul said, 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10. So, we are saved by grace. But that grace should result, will result, in a hatred for sin and a progression in righteousness. And if it doesn't, then we give ample evidence that we were never truly saved in the first place. Old Testament and New. Obedience is expected and required of saved people. And Old Testament and New. Curses fall on the persistently disobedient. That's the way the world is wired. And that's the way the covenant is framed. Thanks be to God. Now, in terms of structure, verses 1 to 2 contain a brief summary of the main points of the law, and then verses 3 to 13 provide the list of promised blessings. Verses 14 to 39, the corresponding list of promised hardships and punishments, followed by an entreaty to repentance and restoration in verses 40 to 45, and then concluding with a brief summary statement in verse 46. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So this epilogue begins with a basic summary of covenant law. The covenant is about worshiping Yahweh the right way, at the right time, in the right place. To the extent that you do that, you will receive blessings from Yahweh and you will enjoy his presence. That's the basic idea here. Verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So the blessings that are promised here include rain, abundant harvest, prosperity, peace, assistance in battle, large families, and the assurance of good relations with the Lord. Verse 10 talks about eating up the food they had stored for the Sabbath year. God says, if you trust me and obey me with the Sabbath challenge, 
I will show up and do my part. I will give you more than enough food to store up so that you can survive and thrive during the Sabbath year. The best blessing of all is listed in verses 11 to 12, the experience of God's active presence among the people. God will be tangibly near to the people. He will walk among you. The Hebrew literally says, I will walk about in your midst. The sense of God's near presence is a blessing that is only experienced by the obedient, Old Testament and New. In verse 13, God's intention to redignify the people is stated as one of the foundational purposes of his redemptive activity among them. God saves and blesses so as to restore human beings to their original dignity and purpose. Praise the Lord. Verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you. You shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted." The section detailing the curses that will fall upon the disobedient is considerably longer than the section detailing the blessings. That is noteworthy. It is noteworthy that the curses appear to come in escalating stages. There are multiple transitions indicated in the text. Look again at verse 18. After talking about panic, disease, depression, low harvest, and military disruption, he says, and if in spite of this... You will not listen to me. Then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. So if you don't respond to the bare bum spank, then we'll pull out the old wooden spoon. Things things will ratchet up as it were. The rains will be withheld. The climate will change. Your economy will collapse. We get another transition point in verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. So it looks like there are several off-ramps on this road to destruction and ruin. At any time in this process, you can cry uncle. At any time, you can repent and break the chain of consequences before we reach the point of no return. I learned this lesson as a child. My mother had a very tender heart and she struggled to discipline her children. She did it. But like any good mom, it was obvious that she didn't want to do it. 
So I learned that it was the very height of wisdom to begin wailing and crying the moment her tiny little hand landed upon my very well-padded backside. If I cried and confessed and repented, then the punishment came to a rapid end. She would start to cry, we'd hug, it would all be over. But if you persisted, if you didn't confess or repent, then I learned by watching my older siblings that the punishment would continue and even escalate. So God here, like a good parent from back in the day, gave every opportunity to the child to bring things to a rapid and happy end. Only a foolish child or a stubborn and rebellious child would pass by those many well-lit exits. We begin to hear about that in verse 23. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hands of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. God is going to win this confrontation. That's the main point here. If Israel is going to be a stubborn son, then God will just increase the severity of the punishments until Israel's pride is broken. So this can go on a long time. It can go on as long as you want, God says. I can make this as hard as it needs to be. You decide. Look at verse 27. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations." And I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Here, the absolute worst punishment is stated. This is where the road leads if you refuse to repent. I will give you over to your enemies. They will come and surround your cities and lay siege to you, and you will suffer all the horrors associated with that particularly barbaric form of warfare. You will starve to death. You will go mad. You will eat the dead bodies of your own children. You will be reduced to shadows and skeletons. And the few of you who survive will be led off into exile in chains. Of course, as we continue to read the story of Israel in the Old Testament, we see that on at least two different occasions, the people went all the way down this road to destruction and ruin. Northern Israel was defeated and sent into exile in the 8th century BC. And then the southern kingdom of Judah suffered a similar fate at the hands of the Babylonians in the 6th century BC. They were surrounded, starved, defeated, largely destroyed, 
with the survivors being led off into exile. Verse 34. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. They shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up, and those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. In a sense, the punishment of exile is presented both as discipline for the people and as respite for the land, which is a reminder that God's ways are good for us and they're good for the environment. God's commandments are intended to point us in the direction of our original dignity and calling. And part of that calling has to do with stewardship over the earth. So remember that these commandments are not just religious in nature. They're also relational and even environmental. Obeying the Lord should result in peace with God, peace with our fellow man, and peace with our surrounding environment. Thus, the exile removes a disobedient and harmful people until they can be restored to some semblance of wisdom and obedience. Exile intends to build up the land and break down the people. And it will break them down. They will be shadows of their former selves. And to the outside observer, it will appear as if they have been reduced beyond all hope of recovery. Verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules, and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So here God says that even in exile, even should they stubbornly persist all the way to the end of this road of discipline and destruction, if they confess and repent and turn toward God in their hearts, then he will revisit them and revive them and return them 
to their former health and prosperity. He wants to do this. He wants to do this because he loves them, despite their tendency toward rebellion. And he wants to do this because his name is caught up with the fortunes of his covenant people. People will look at Israel and they will make judgments about God. So God is determined for this story to eventually come to a happy and glorious conclusion. The chapter ends with a very brief summary in verse 46. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. So what are we to do with this chapter? As we talked about off the top, the principles stated here remain in effect, even in the New Testament. D.A. Carson, for example, says here, Obedience is still required under the new covenant, even though some of the stipulations to be obeyed have changed. It is therefore not surprising that John 3.36 contrasts the person who believes in the Son with the one who disobeys him. Closed quote. So in the New Testament also, saved people are expected to obey. Obedience is characteristic of saved people such that those who don't obey are understood as really those who don't believe. To, to not obey, to rebel, and to reject the word of God is, of course, to place yourself outside. So, the same principles apply. But in the New Testament, greater graces have thankfully been given. A saved person has a circumcised heart, a softened heart, a prepared heart, and a saved person has a new spirit. The saved person also now has access to the climactic revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So, with those greater graces, the assumption of the New Testament writings is that a person who persists in rebellion and disobedience gives ample and damning evidence that he was never truly saved in the first place. A saved person will obey. These are tremendous graces that a saved person lays hold of. So a saved person, by means of these graces, will obey. Not perfectly and not immediately, but progressively and increasingly. That will happen. And as it happens, the saved person will increasingly, though not perfectly, in this life, experience the blessings and the presence of the Lord. And then at the final judgment, he or she will enter into all the blessings of God in their entirety, just as the finally rebellious person will experience the curse of God in its entirety forever. Old Testament and New, these are the stakes, and this is the encouragement and the warning. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.